0: welcome to aucd network narratives where we share real stories from our members i'm your host jd flores a self-advocacy discipline coordinator at the strong center for developmental disabilities and the co-chair for the council on leadership and advocacy join us as we hear from inspiring leaders within our network working to make a change
1: in today's episode of AUCD Network Narratives, JD is joined by her colleague Yetta Myrick. Yetta is the mother of a teenage son on the autism spectrum. She is the founder and president of DC Autism Parents, a nonprofit organization. Yetta serves as the CDC's actorly ambassador to DC. In this role, she promotes developmental monitoring and assists families in getting the help they need to access services for their children. Listen in to learn more about her work promoting resiliency in Black families with young children during the pandemic.
0: This episode is about pretty much like what you've done and the work that you have. So can you tell me, you know, what some of the things that you're working on and some of the things that in your personal life kind of motivated some of the work that you did during uh, the beginning of the pandemic or even just now during the pandemic as you're trying to you know, stay safe from COVID, you and your son.
1: Thanks for that question, JD. So I have a soon-to-be 19-year-old son. By the time this is released, he will be 19, um, who was diagnosed with autism, intellectual disability, and ADHD. When COVID first hit, I'm gonna be honest, like I didn't know how he was gonna do in terms of being at home. I mean, I don't think anyone knew anything, but like if you are a parent um with a child with intellectual disability autism, I think there were a lot of questions that were coming up. And I was you know, I was thinking, how am I gonna like help him get through his day and all of that? So it was like that piece and like keeping him motivated and like how can I like ensure that there's structure, right? So there's that one piece that you know that I think a lot of parents are thinking about. But the other piece too, in terms of like the safety, we, you know, we were not leaving the house. There were concerns about like, I remember early on, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask when you leave? Leave the house and finally say, okay, wear a mask. And so there was like, okay, is he going to be able? Like, again, my anxiety was like coming up. Is he going to be able to keep the mask on and all of this? And I And I think the reality is, That my son surprised me. Like, he has been doing a really good job of like keeping his mask on. Like, I think he just, you go out, you see other people, you recognize, okay, we've been in the house for four or five weeks, (laughs) you know, at a time. You're like ordering, you know, ordering food in. We did go out in that mad dash early on to like get things before everything shut down. He really surprised me. He adapted really well when we finally got to the point where School was starting online. Initially, it was like, okay, again, how is this going to go? So I would sit with him. And, you know, over time, fortunately, he was able to sit and attend to his classes. I know that online was not the best thing for everybody with a disability, but he really exceeded my expectations. I actually think that we put a lot of good things in place at home, and, and we live in a multi generational home. We live with my mom and my dad. My mom is now retired, thank goodness. Throughout COVID, my dad was leaving the home. Unfortunately, he works security, so you know, again, like really trying to make sure that everyone was safe. You know, I fortunately am able to work from home, but there were just a lot of things, you know, precautions that we would take when we would leave out. Okay, if we're going to the store or we need to leave the house, it literally, we all three—my mom, my son, and I—left as a unit. <laughs> uh, so it was like, if it, everybody's gonna get it, we're gonna get it together. You know, they—they they were just all of these things. So, yeah, it was a really challenging time. He is back in school now. I will disclose that when he started back in the twenty twenty one twenty two school year, and he is in a non public school placement outside of DC he was fine like during the summer and then when we got to october he ended up testing positive for COVID. and at that point i'm like you know what like i've done everything i was driving him and the school is like a 45 minute drive from the house i was like no like yeah, I talked to his doctor. I'm like, I know he needs to be back in school, but I just cannot take this risk because he does have asthma, you know, and autism with the, you know, with the language. I just have real concerns. So he's back in now, <laughs> as, as we record this. Matt, he's wear, wearing his mask. He's back on transportation because you know, over time, it's like, how can I sustain this and work and like handle my own mental health, right? We're going to see how this goes. But I've been like checking. Thank goodness he has a phone. I check in and see if his mask is on. I call and FaceTime him so I can physically see. Or I text him and say, mask on. I texted him this morning. He said, okay. Just pray that he remains safe. And so how did that like feed into your advocacy work? Oh my goodness. Thank you for bringing me back. So in terms of the advocacy, so obviously there was real concern in the community about, you know, specifically, you know, the mask use and so especially in this population and so i remember like some of my colleagues i do some consulting with children's national hospital in in washington dc and we put together a document about like mass usage and like basically how to support families with that and so i so some of my colleagues there wrote something up and i provided a lot of feedback and asked okay well what about this situation so on and so forth and we made Um, that available. Another thing that I did through my nonprofit, DC Autism Parents, was really looking at, like, think about transportation for, um, you know, children and youth with disabilities is, you know, making sure that families understand, like, where are all these resources, like what what needs to be done to make it easier? So I put together a back to school guide that had like all these different resources about like mask wearing. I mean, I remember like Sesame Street, um, for example, has done a lot of work around autism. And when I work full-time at children's, the first project that I ever worked on was a Sesame Street project and bring basically Julie, it was it was amazing. There are no words. I'm gonna have to like send a link of when they launched it on at the Capitol, but it was just amazing because, like, who doesn't love Sesame Street, right? And I love the work they're doing around autism and, you know, Julia and like making sure that like families have these resources because a lot, you know, a lot of these kids are scared. And it wasn't just like autism, they did like a whole string of things about COVID 19, which I think have been really, really great. And so, you know, including those resources so that families don't have to like look for it as it comes across in my inbox or like I'm looking up stuff. Okay, what can make life easier for families to know like how to navigate this? So that so that was some of the work I did. Now of course the other thing that you know came up in terms of you know COVID 19 was the death of George Floyd and and so many others. And and at that time i was working with parents place of maryland which is a family of family health information center in maryland and i was basically working on like their health and community i was the health and communications director and so i would be on these weekly calls with family voices which is the national organization network of these family of family health information centers and we would have weekly calls um, and check in about, you know, what was happening in terms of, you know, COVID 19. What do, you know, families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities need. And I remember there being conversations and in and, and full disclosure, and, and and we say this when we talk about this project that came out of it, is that, you know, the network, you know, primarily it is is white women, right? I mean, things are changing now, but this is the reality. And so we were having conversations about, you know, what does this mean for like, black shin and disabilities, black children youth with special health care needs? And so I spoke up as well as two other moms in, in these conversations, about our experience being African-American or black, parents of children, <laughs> children with youth special health care needs and disabilities, and shared that, like we weren't, unfortunately surprised. like this is
0: commonplace for us. Honestly, um to be real with you. I'm like in awe that you exist because it's not a lot of y'all, right? Like uh, outside of my mama and maybe a handful of women that I know on a personal level, it's not a lot of y'all, like in this advocacy realm. And the, I mean, and there probably is. It just it takes more work to uncover. Yeah,
1: and you don't necessarily have the platform, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. I think right. I think the reality is that you know, and we have and we have to like say this and be real, like to do this work it takes a lot physically people are not necessarily like paid what they should be paid to do yeah, this work no, no. and the reality is unless you have support right to help you pay your bills a lot of us aren't able to do this work unless we have these supports and i've been very fortunate to be able to to do this work and this is not what i originally started doing which you know happens oftentimes a lot of us like we're doing other work and then it's like because of our children we start advocating and and doing it but yeah so we're like at this table having these conversations and being real right and everybody's just like kind of like in awe in this co- in these conversations We would meet and over time, like we were approached about like doing a project. And so the name of the project, and it's a long title, I just want to like let everybody know who's listening. It's Family Voices United to End Racism Against Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs and Families. What we call it for short is FAMU, Nancy Labogo, who is my co-lead. She's like this is homage <laughs> to Florida A&M down in Florida but we started this project really to have conversations and to support the network and learning right about like what this experience is and so we engaged in having town halls um were on a number of topics so um whether it was mental health school to prison pipe- pipeline health in general we even had one on the talk right and if you are i hope that everybody who's listening now knows
0: what the talk is i knew at the time that there were a lot of people who didn't know but even that is big because People don't talk about sexuality or even sex with kids with disabilities, right? It's not a, a place that they venture to, right? It's not a, a situation that they're willing But not
1: that talk. Unfortunately, we didn't go there. We're talking about the talk about being Black. Black.
0: And the police. I mean, those are... And the police. Yes. Yeah, that's a heavy... Yeah. There's some other work I'm doing in that realm. <laughs> Just so you know. But even, like, that, it, know that. even that is also another place, right? Like, that we don't talk about necessarily enough, right? Like... I mean, my brother's six foot one, maybe six foot two. He's like a, a linebacker size, pretty big dude. And, you know, I worry about him often because my brother was born in the 90s. So autism wasn't something that was like trickled down in the 90s. You know, in the 90s, all black and brown kids had ADHD or ADD. And that's what my brother was diagnosed with. But if you meet him, right, and if you have any experience with what autism is like, but because he's also an adult it would be harder to get him an official diagnosis. But in my heart, from all the work that I've done and all the experience that I have... Oh, my gosh. I would say that my brother is autistic. The thing is, he understands that he's neurodivergent, but I think that him, like, receiving an autism diagnosis would be really big for him because he's defined disability already, and he doesn't fit in that. Like, he, I fit in that, and that's how he's defined it. And, you know, talking to my mom, who we're citizens so we're not immigrants because we're from Puerto Rico but um I would say our experience mirrors some of what some immigrants in this country have faced and so not speaking the languages is huge so talking to my mom you know she's like well you know you think I could have done something different I'm like no you did the best that you could with what she had but when you were talking about this six foot one six foot two dude who weighs over 300 pounds who has a tunnel vision and has a hard time hearing people talk to him. My brother, he should buy stock in beats because of how many headphones he goes through a year <laughs> because he uses them every day. And yeah. even if they're not playing music, they have to be on his neck, right? And so I can't, I, I think about him in those kind of settings. He's a brown dude. So like, you know, we live in this city that isn't, that the police aren't the, we just, you know, around George Floyd time, we had um, some protests here um, over a gentleman named Daniel Prude, who was, you know, murdered by the police. Um, and there was a lot of civil unrest and there was riots here in our city. And he was in a mental health crisis. Daniel Prude was. He was, you know, he should have been met with love and help. And he wasn't, unfortunately. But I think of, you know, Daniel Prude could have been any of the men in my family. You know, we, Puerto Rican folks, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but we're the, colors, the United Benetons. Like, we like we come in every shade. I have. I think I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've come in every shade. And Daniel Pruitt could have easily been anyone in my family. And so when I, I take this personally, right, that this has taken place, and I take it personally that, you know, my family can't. You know, because they don't speak the language they struggle through. Right. Like if my mother had to really push through it and and really stress the folks like, well, listen, my little brother is a teddy bear. He just has tunnel vision. And when he's on a mission, like, yeah, better get out of his way. Yeah, it's hard to really, you know, shift him over to something different. And I get that about him. But that doesn't mean that everybody else sees him in that way, especially because he's a big dude. Like if he was a smaller, scrawnier dude, maybe it'd be different for him, but
1: he's a big guy. My son is tall too, right? He's thin and tall. And thinking about the Fam U project, one of the things that I shared very early on was about how we got an elevator pre-COVID. And this white woman, and it was on the quote unquote white side of town, <laughs> Um in DC or like right o- no right over the line of Montgomery County so off Wisconsin Avenue and we got in the elevator I was taking him to an appointment out there and I remember this woman cl- literally clutching her purse when she got on the elevator and I'm like my son like can care less that you're even on here lady right but it just really it really hurt me right because there are all these perceptions about who we are right when we talk about like getting to know who someone is on the inside and i'm not saying like there isn't safety issue with you you leave the house there's all these type of safety things but i really hope and pray that we can, like, move past this, like, just looking at people and, like, making these judgments about who people are. For
0: sure. Because the talk is hard to have with someone, because it's an obscure talk, right? Like, you, there is, while there's the clear fact that this is how you, like, to be safe, this is maybe how you should potentially understand how you're perceived. But that's still obscure, like, for someone who needs, like, my brother needs literal, like, concrete. So, like, I'm telling him, like, Mike, his name is Michael, I call him Mike, Mike, you're, you're a big guy, like, and so, like, it's not that you are doing something wrong, it's your presence is big, baby, like, so, like, I, I need you to take two steps back from someone, like, understand, like, how much space you're taking up, and there's so many levels to it, and ultimately, like, he should be free to just be him, because he's just a little weird dude who's into anime, who listens to Japanese music, doesn't speak Spanish, but, you know, our parents don't speak English, like, he has all these different questions quirks about him but it's hard like that talk because if we go back to that it's hard for him to but I wasn't doing anything and I, I know you weren't but like this is how that because he, he works at Target as a cashier and he has a lot of interactions with white women He it's in the white side of our city a suburb and so he has a lot of interactions with white women who feel a way about but he works self-checkout so he's like intensely watching all of these machines yeah, because he yeah. wants to be able to jump in and put in the coat. He like, he doesn't want to have to talk to you as much. So he wants to like, yeah.
1: Which I get. Mm-hmm. Get all
0: your, he wants to take care of all the things that might pop up for you before they pop up. And like, he hasn't received the best reception, but I'm like, well, babe, like you're a big guy. Like, I need you to like acknowledge that like how much your looming presence. Cause it's felt, but he shouldn't like, I shouldn't have to, I feel bad at that time. Cause then it's like, I'm policing him and that's not the case at all. Like I'm not trying to police you and who you are and what you do. Be free, but also be conscious because, like, this could go left so fast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and right. that is You're really absolutely. the hardest part, in my opinion, of from the, like, uh, my lived experience of it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the reality of so many of us who are, as you say, black and brown people of color, right? Like, these are things that we think about and sometimes can keep us up at night to be quite honest and and I share that and I share that here that like you don't want to live in fear but that is a fear of mine that you know like even if if I you know I try to like be law-abiding right but what if there's a situation you accidentally like run a stop sign because you don't see it like normal everyday stuff right and he's in the car with me like there's real concern like I don't ever want to be like stopped by the police for anything (laughs) because and he's in the car because like there's a real concern for me around that you know and it should not have to be but it is and that's the reality and so you know having conversations like these i think are so important so that people can understand like this is not just my experience this is your experience this is the experience of so many others um out there and it's it is great that we are
0: bringing this to light for sure and so as we're wrapping up, I want to ask you one other question. If you had to give like a token of advice for these folks in our network who are listening and who are doing the work, you know, to dismantle some of the racism that has taken place within our network, I can't say the country because that's a bigger task. What piece of advice would you give for them to learn and take from you? So one, I'm going
1: to put a plug in for the FAMU toolkit, <laughs> So we'll make sure that that is available. So it's familyvoices.org slash FAMU, F-A-M-U, and check that out. There's a lot of great resources that we put together there. Um, The second thing I would say is to engage with families, people of color in your network and have conversations. Now, I just want to say it with this caveat. While you can have conversations this also will require you all to do work as well so do not look to those people who you're having conversations to do all the work for you this is a mindset shift this is inner work that is going to need to be done on an individual level even beyond like okay we can start making changes in our organizations that's great but in order for there to be real change, think about if there's anything that you want to do in your life, right? You have to like set your mind to want to do it and be in that space to do it and work through whatever it is, you know, on an individual level. So it's like, it's individual, right? That then can trickle up to like, you know, other people that we work with, you know, our department, the larger organizations, right? Like. This is how we do the work. This is not a while. I think that yes, work needs to be coming from the top down, it also needs to be coming from the bottom up, right? Like this, this has been something that has been going on for more than generations, for centuries. And we need to do this work and and educate ourselves.
0: For sure. Well, thank you so much, Yeda. I really appreciate you, your time, your story, everything. You're a unicorn to me. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) I'm a fan too, Janie. It's so great to be on and talk with
0: you. Yes, ma'am. Ditto. Thank you for tuning in to AUCD Network Narratives. If this story has inspired you to make a change at your center or program, use the link in our show notes for resources and tools to help you lead on. We'd love to connect with you. So visit the AUCD website and click on the Submit Your Story button at the top. We hope to hear from you soon.